When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Hello and welcome to episode 325 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today we head to the northeast of England to Teesside for a quite startling story. It's a real orgy of violence with such, well, maybe it's not such surprising consequences. Let's set some context for today's story with our guest, The Month in Year Game. At number one in the UK charts was one of the worst covers I recall, and let's face it, there have been a few. It was Atomic Kitten with Eternal Flame. In the US, top spot was Fallen from Alicia Keys, and in Australia, the second top-selling single this year was Shaggy and It Wasn't Me. If you haven't heard it for a while, take a listen again today. And when they accuse you, just sing it back to them again and again. In the news this month, singer Aliyah and eight others were killed in an air crash in the Bahamas. Tory MP Neil Hamilton and his wife Christine were both cleared in connection with sexual assault allegations. Southampton Football Club moved into their 32,000 seats at Mary's Stadium. On my first visit there, I watched probably my most enjoyable Mighty League United game as they came back from 3-0 down at half-time, it could have been 7, to win 4-3. Just another reason why they are the greatest team in world football. It's just a blip. This month, former Royal Butler Paul Burrell was charged with the theft of items belonging to the late Diana, Princess of Wales. The prosecution subsequently collapsed. There was utter horror in Gravesend, Kent, when police officer Carl Bluestone murdered his wife Jill and two of the couple's children with a claw hammer before killing himself in the garage. The two oldest children survived the attack. And charismatic former goalkeeper Liz Seeley died of a heart attack at just 43. So did you get the month and year? It was August 2001. Remember the start of the millennium? Everything to look forward to. How's that worked out for you? (laughs) Oh, that's been interesting, hasn't it? It's certainly been interesting, if nothing else. Yeah, anyway, let's get on with today's story. The story begins in Middlesbrough. It's got a population of around 140,000 people based in the northeast of England on the south bank of the River Tees. Now, let's go back to 1989 when house music was dominating clubs throughout the UK. One of the most popular clubs in Middlesbrough was called Havana. Every city, every town has a Havana, right? And there the clubbers danced away. It was boom times for nightclubs. Middlesbrough was a pretty tough place at the time, and for many this was their escape from the difficulty and drudgery of everyday life. Of course, If you were around at the time, you will know that as well as the music, the key to that scene at that time was the emergence of ecstasy tablets. 
the sensible press and the sensible people screamed out the headlines of deaths caused by this drug. But the young people, generally, couldn't care less. Ecstasy, for many, created a sense of euphoria like none other as they danced the night away. Not me, of course. I always say no to drugs. Now, Lee Harrison was the DJ at Havana. He was a good-looking guy, easygoing, and he did a great job with the crowd. He was chanting, You chill, I chill, on a pill. We all chill, chill, on a pill, pill. Or something like that. To the delighted screams of the clubbers, many of whom wore whistles round their necks and wore clothing that was, well, like any craze, almost like a uniform. Unless you've been in the crowd at these events, it's hard to describe just how different it felt to the clubbing before this time. The BBC recently did an excellent piece on Lee Harrison, the DJ at Havana, which I will refer to through this podcast. And of course, like all my sources, can be found in my show notes. Lee grew up in Middlesbrough, where his dad was a businessman, but he'd also spent a lot of his time on the inside, including a long stretch for importing drugs from Pakistan. Lee, growing up, was an outstanding junior boxer, and when he got a bit older, he became a football hooligan, following Middlesbrough, fighting rival fans home and away with his firm that was called the Middlesbrough Front Line. A friend of Lee's from the time described those days, saying, We would get guys from all the nearby estates. It wasn't about the violence. It was about gaining respect for our hometown. Lee loved it. He loved the attention. And it was these afternoons of violence which gave him the name he used to DJ, Hooligan X. Now Lee was, as you may imagine, a bit of a boy around Middlesbrough, driving round in an open-top convertible with the music pumping out loud. One friend described him as follows. Lee would get where the wind doesn't get, but in a lovely, cheeky way. He was a good-looking lad and could get any woman he wanted. You would see photographs of him with Mike Tyson and you would just snigger. Yep, that's the Lee that we know. But this wasn't the only part to his character and he was also known to be violent. He once carried around a real gun and threatened a friend with it during an argument and there were other episodes too. Now Lee was an academic at school and he dropped out without qualifications to join his dad in the family business which was counterfeiting. It was mainly clothes but they dabbled in watches and other stuff too. But through all this, all through his childhood, Lee's real love was music, and with his good looks and his great DJ skills and his energy, he was in demand working in the Spanish resorts during the summer. And when he returned to the UK with a great track record and reputation, including mixing with some of the the best DJs at the time, when he came back to Middlesbrough, a local club owner put him in charge of managing all the entertainment at the Havana nightclub, and later the arena nightclub in the town. So the 1990s were a great time for Lee, as the ecstasy scene and the nightclub scene around it continued to boom and money was rolling in. But it seems that during that time, like so many, Lee got heavily involved in making money from the local drugs and also the sex work scenes, and became involved in all the turf wars 
with the different groups that were also involved, as we've heard so often on this podcast. They're all chasing the same money and they clash. And in 2001, everything changed for Lee. As he and his gang went on a campaign of violence in the centre of Middlesbrough, spread over a period of nearly 22 hours. With his friend Jonathan Crossling, Thomas Petch, George Coleman, they set out to find a man named Craig Dalla Dalziel, who they believed had been taxing sex workers and drug stealers. These men were high on crack cocaine and seriously angry as they began their search for their prey. A terrible combination. In August 2001, 41-year-old market trader Calvin Singh lived in Middlesbrough. He had a wife, a son and five daughters and he'd given up his studies to become the family's main breadwinner in their market business. But there was no bitterness from Calvin who had a sense of duty and to do what was right. He was a happy-go-lucky kind of guy very popular with his customers, lots of friends. On the 5th of August 2001, after spending the evening at a pub in Saltburn, Calvin took a taxi back to Middlesbrough and was dropped off just by his home. But you know how it is sometimes after a night out, when you just aren't ready to go home, and it seems that this is how Calvin felt on this evening. Instead of just going through his front door, he met sex worker Claire Burgess in the centre of Middlesbrough and went with her to a place where she took customers, a terraced house on Errol Street. It was the home of a man called Michael Moody who rented out rooms to sex workers and Calvin and Claire went to an upstairs bedroom and at some point they both drifted off to sleep. They were woken just before 7am by a commotion downstairs. Jonathan Crossling burst into the room. Claire knew him as one of the Crossling brothers, Jason and Jonathan. Jonathan's nickname was Bam Bam. He was a local gangster with a fearsome reputation for violence and that morning he was intent on dishing out a beating to his rival. He was worked up into a frenzy and anybody stood in his or the rest of the gang's way was subjected to terrible levels of violence. The gang approached a clearly terrified Calvin. This wasn't the sort of life he lived and the circles he moved in, and he must have felt like he was living a nightmare. He was then struck several times on the chest and head before being pushed backwards with such force that he smashed through the window and fell through to the yard below. Claire later said, Bam Bam pushed Mr. Singh out of the window. He really pushed him. You could see the anger. Claire said she heard Calvin cry out as he fell and she rushed down the stairs to see what she could do to help him. But as she did so, she saw the man who owned the house in Errol Street and lived on the first floor, Michael Moody, ferociously beaten. She saw another member of the gang, Tom Petch, violently assault him, saying, Tom Petch was standing over him. He just rammed his head into the fish tank. Michael Moody's injuries were so severe that he was lucky to escape with his life. He was left unconscious with 14 fractures to bones in his face and he needed an emergency tracheotomy. The gang then drove to nearby Southfield Road where they kicked in the doors of a dozen bedsits 
by the belief that the man they were looking for might have been hiding, but with no luck. And those people who had the misfortune to be present were also subjected to a terrifying experience as they were threatened and attacked, with Crossling by this time brandishing a samurai sword. From here, the gang returned to Crossling's home, their orgy of violence over for now. It was 9am that morning that the police were called when Michael Moody was found by his daughter lying in a pool of blood. Police initially thought it was a simple case of serious assault, and it was only when a scenes of crimes officer shooting video footage of the scene spotted Calvin Singh's lifeless body from the broken first floor bedroom window. Calvin had died from terrible head injuries from the fall, and it was then that the inquiry became a murder hunt. But even as this murder hunt began, Jonathan Crossling and Tom Petch were still continuing their campaign of violence. Early the following morning, Crossling and Petch dragged a man out of his house and beat him up badly. The police were called by a desperately concerned neighbour and arrived to find Petch stripped to the waist like some sort of old school bare knuckle prize fighter. And then after an afternoon on the booze, Petch and another violent associate attacked a Hartlepool taxi driver who refused to take them where they wanted to go. The two ran off, but luckily, two quick-thinking local policemen managed to snare them. Chief Superintendent Mark Braithwaite leading the organisation and then part of Cleveland Police's dedicated murder squad said it quickly became clear that the investigation would be far from straightforward. Given the nature of the criminal underworld and the reputations of those involved, it was clear from the start there were going to be difficulties gathering evidence, he said. Many of our witnesses were or have been criminals themselves, and some were prostitutes and drug users. These were people with formidable reputations within the criminal community, and we knew from an early stage they weren't going to come in and put their hands up, he said. A major operation was launched, and Petch, Coleman, and Crossling's younger brother Jason were charged. But this left Jonathan and Lee Harrison, hooligan X himself, at large. Both had scarpered and were believed to be potentially in Spain. The other three were charged, and there was evidence of witness intimidation in the run-up to the trial. And indeed, Claire Burgess, the sex worker who'd been with Calvin the night before he was killed, had to be put into a witness protection programme and relocated with a new life, several hours travelling time from Teesside. Many would have taken the easy option and not given evidence. I wonder about you and me. Would you have given evidence which meant uprooting your life and changing everything forever? I wonder. I think we have to really admire Claire's extreme bravery. In court, all the men denied the charges against them, where security was incredibly tight. 22-year-old Jason Crossland defended himself and was very clear as he told the jury that he was not with any of the others at the time in question, claiming he did not associate with his brother or Petch. He said, they are into prostitutes and crack cocaine. I wasn't involved in that sort of thing. Were you involved in any way in the killing of Mr Singh or the assault on Michael Moody? He answered no. 
Crossing told the jury he and his family had eaten lunch at the Coronation Pub before going quad biking that day at Redcar. After returning home, he said he went to his local, the Halfpenny, where he stayed until shortly after midnight. I then went home to bed. I was with Lisa, my common-law wife. I did not go out again that night. I did not go out until I went to work the next morning. The jury took nearly two days to reach their verdicts, convicting 23-year-old Petch and 41-year-old Coleman of murder. They were also convicted of causing grievous bodily harm to the occupant of the house, Michael Moody, and wounding two other men with intent at a separate incident. Petch was also convicted of wounding another man at a house the next day. 32-year-old Jason Crossling was cleared of Calvin Singh's murder and the assault of Michael Moody and he was discharged. The judge described the case as one of the most sordid in the grading over which he had presided. He said it was clear the night of violence which left Calvin dead and four other men badly hurt had been sparked by some kind of turf war involving drugs and prostitution. Coleman's barrister asked the judge to take account when making his recommendation as to how long he should serve of the fact he had not been directly in the violence and he had not served a previous prison sentence. On the other hand, the QC for Petch conceded that in view of his client's substantial previous record of violence, there was little that could be said on his behalf and he was given a minimum sentence of 20 years before he was eligible for parole. The minimum time for Coleman wasn't made public. The trial was in many ways fascinating as it unfolded. The Crown claimed initially that the gang were seeking this man called Dalziel, who they believed had been taxing sex workers and stealing their drugs. But during the trial, it became apparent that during their violent spree, some of them were actually just seeking supplies of crack cocaine for themselves to feed their own habits. The scene for the whole case was set in, as it was described, Middlesbrough's seedy town centre, subculture of drug dealing, drug use and sex, where several of the key characters were regular players. It's always interesting to hear it. I don't know if you spent much time in Middlesbrough, but this isn't the sort of environment that I or you or most that visit Middlesbrough would ever see. The interrogation of Coleman under oath was interesting as well. He was known as Chucky George and it revealed he was a one-time nightclub DJ turned crack dealer and presented by the Crown as the gang's driver. He admitted his involvement in selling drugs to sex workers only when his own barrister urged him not to be coy with the jury. You're on trial for murder, not dealing, he told him. The judge, when sentencing him, told Coleman that he'd preyed on vulnerable young women, exploiting their addiction for his own evil ends. And Petch, who was described as inseparable from Jonathan Bam Bam Crossling, also told the jurors that he was heavily into sex workers and crack cocaine. He was revealed to have a record of violent offending, taking him back to the juvenile court. His previous convictions, wounding with intent, assault, burglary with violence and a fray. Calvin Singh's family were in court to see his killers face justice. He was described by members of his family as a devoted family man. 
his widow Pushpa and his brothers Jasbir and Tony were torn between their grief and just devastated and mystified by the circumstances in which he died were so different to how he lived his life. Jasbir echoed the words of Claire Burgess in court when she had told the jury that he'd not been looking for sex, he just wanted someone to talk to. He said, Our family are just relieved to see justice done. Calvin's was a happy family man, respected in the Sikh community. His behaviour that night was totally out of character. I think he just went looking for someone to talk to. Although like many others he had domestic troubles, he did not deserve to die in this violent way at the hands of these men. His widow Pushpa said she regretted not being in Middlesbrough that night as she was visiting relatives in Manchester. If I'd been there perhaps things might have turned out differently. These men were responsible for Calvin's tragic death and I'm glad justice has been done. Years later, Chief Superintendent Braithwaite was interviewed and he said he was still unable to understand the few minutes of madness which scarred so many lives forever. Calvin Singh was killed, his children have been left without their dad, his family without their elder brother, he said. Michael Moody was critically injured and still suffers from the effects of the attack on him and at least three other people were assaulted. On top of that, a witness is in a long-term relocation programme. Two relatively young men are serving life for murder. It was such a complete waste of so many people's lives and I've asked myself many times why. What on earth was it all for? A question I think that we ask ourselves so many times on this podcast. So what do you make of what we've heard today? I don't know about you, but I'm always terrified when I see violence in any context. I walk away from it. Always walk away from it. Today's, I think, is an utterly terrifying story. And I think of those violent men, high on crack, not caring one iota for the rule of law or for who they hurt in their rampage of violence. What if you or one of your family members had happened to be in the street that day and come across them? You too would have suffered their violence. It seems that poor Calvin Singh was attacked just because he was there and just because he was not the person who was being looked for, so they took out their anger on him, the force to push him, to push him through that window and the terror he must have felt when this was happening to him. And as the detective says, for what? So many lives ruined and all for nothing. But this isn't the end of the story. What happened to the other two men responsible for the events we've heard today? Jonathan Bam Bam Crossland and Lee Harrison, DJ Hooligan X himself. Next week, in the concluding part of this story, which takes us to Spain and the Middle East, we conclude this two-part story of fear and loathing on Teesside. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please join almost 87,000 of us at the Facebook group. It's many things, it's never dull. Just search UK True Crime on Facebook. 
And to support this show, please join our community at Patreon. A huge thank you to the new members of this community this week. That is Nicola Dealtree and Steve James, along with Kai Michael Pop, who has increased his support. Thank you all so much. It is so appreciated. And if you want to join us for over 50 bonus episodes, other exclusive content, competitions, and loads, loads more, please just head over to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. It costs as little as £1.50 a month and you can cancel at any time. Please come and support me. That's patreon.com slash UK True Crime. Okay, so that's all for me for today for another week. So please do come and join me next week as we return to Teesside and further afield to finish this week's story. Until then, until Tuesday, please do take it easy. And most of all, most of all, despite all the others, please do stay classy and cheerio for now. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You've worked hard for what you have your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.